it's good to be with you. And I do this out of the up top because really our our morning's topic as we continue in First John it really has absolutely nothing to do, do, to do with moms. So hopefully we're okay uh, with that. We're talking about deception, and I figure that doesn't apply with our moms. And so uh, just talking, and, and I realized as I was preparing this, this week that uh, even thinking about the beginning of this uh, topic is uh, how many people there are that fall into the have lots of dreams category in their life, like sleeping, have dreams, and then there's a lot that like, oh man, maybe once a month I have a dream, not very often. What, what category do you fall into? Are you somebody that has dreams often, or are you somebody that dreams only occasionally? I figure I kind of fall somewhere in the middle, somewhere in the middle of the amount of dreams. A lot of times you wake up and you're like, what a wacky dream. Anybody have some pretty wacky dreams in their life? And you're like, man, what did I eat the evening before? My, my wife this week, uh, she just left this morning on Mother's Day for a week in Acapulco with her friends. Her sister was treating her for her 40th birthday, and so she's having a chance to get away with some girlfriends. And so she, all week, she was telling me, oh, I kept waking up with this reoccurring dream. Can you guess what her dream was heading to Acapulco? She forgot her passport. So she has that. And sometimes dreams, have you had these before? Dreams that you wake up and you, you're like, like, it was so real. Like you can't even believe that that wasn't real. You can't even imagine that. The reason I bring up dreams this morning, and you're like, how does this relate at all to First John? And it's kind of my random train of thought. But, but I was thinking about dreams, and really if I were to think of what my worst possible dream that I could have would to be after breathing my last breath to open my eyes to come to realize that I had been lied to my entire life and I had believed the wrong things about Jesus Christ. Not only that, the things that I believe determined my eternity. The things that I believe determine my eternity. And the truth is, this morning, is that's not just a dream. That's going to be the reality, unfortunately, for many. Our text this, this morning points to the fact that we're surrounded with those lying to us that are presenting things to us that are untrue, and that many are going to wake up to an eternity where they find out they believed the wrong things. So my hope is, coming into our text this morning, is that we'll discover how to better expose lies and see the truth, to be equipped in that, to be able to see right through something that's deception and be able to say, no, that's not true. This is true. This is the truth. My friend here from the church, Matt McCormick, uh, texted me or actually emailed me this week. He was in the process of buying a, a used car, and he was shopping on Craigslist. And if you've done any shopping on Craigslist, especially for cars, there's so many fraudulent people out there. And he was sending me this one. He's like, oh, this car seems perfect, but it almost seems too perfect. And he kind of went back and forth in this email dialogue. The more we dug in together the more we found out, oh, it was just another fraudulent seller out there. They wanted him to deposit money, but they weren't going to be present. Like all this crazy stuff. The ability in life to see through lies is a critical survival mechanism. But in a spiritual sense, it's even more critical. So I'm going to pray towards that end, and then we'll dive into our text this morning. 
Dear God, we just come to you right now and we thank you for the practical tool that you left us with, your word that helps us decipher between truth and lies to determine what is of you and what is not. God, I ask that you'd speak to us this morning through your text and that you would allow us to be better equipped to see truth, to expose lies in your power. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you wouldn't mind turning with me, we're going to be in 1 John 2. We're starting in verse 18 here this morning. It says there in verse 18, so 1 John 2, 18 says this, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Let's take a break and, and, and break that down a little bit. As it continues, it's interesting. The first thing we've seen really in every uh, section that we've done so far in this book, he starts by referring to the believers as children. And I, I love that term of endearment. It makes me think of an elderly person that comes to you. Have you had this before? My child. And you're like, I'm 40. But that's okay. I like that. And, and you picture this. And most commentators believe that John, as he's writing this, is over 90 years old. So if anybody's qualified to call others children, he would be that one. What does he say? He says, starting out there, he says, it is the last hour. Now, upon first read of this, you're like, wait a second. The the naysayer might say, wait a second, this guy's a little cuckoo. He's off his rocker because why? This was written 2,000 years ago or around 2,000 years ago. How could he be saying that it's the last hour. Is he, is he like those today that are predicting the return of Christ that are completely off? Have you seen some of these people that, that uh, make it to the news? I was reading just a few years back, you uh, are reading about this gentleman that just a few years back, Ronald Wineland, you may even remember some of his predictions. He predicted that Jesus Christ would return on September 29th, 2011. And then September 29th, 2011, came and passed. Then he, he changed it up. His next prediction was he moved the date to May 27th, my wife's birthday, uh, 2012, that that was going to be the return of Christ. Guess what happened then? The same thing that happened in 2011, nothing. And then when that prediction failed, I found this interesting. He moved the date to May 18th, 2013, claiming that it, a day with God was as a year. So that bought him another year. And then how his story concluded was Wineland was convicted of tax evasion in 2012 and sentenced to three and a half years in federal prison. So, of course, if you know when Christ is returning, why keep paying taxes, right? And so, But the, the truth about Scripture is you have to read it in context of the whole Bible. And the Scripture teaches us that nobody, it's a reoccurring theme, nobody knows the time and hour of Christ's return. And so here in the text, John's not crazy. In Scripture, an hour is related to a period of time. A period of time. The time between Christ's ascension when he left the earth and Christ's return is a period of of time, and what we know as currently as the church age. If you're familiar with that term, we're currently living 
in the church age. And the question that many would ask today is if we're in this period between his, his leaving and his coming back again, where are we at in that church age? Where are we at on that? If you're thinking of it in a timeline, where do we fall in that? Have you wondered that before? For me, I've often wondered that, and there's much debate over that, but there's a lot of people that dig into the end times and studying what needed to happen and what prophecies needed to be fulfilled that would say not only are we in the last hour, we're literally in the last moments or minutes before his return. As far as eschatological timelines, there's nothing left that needs to still happen before his returns. And so to some degree, there he is trying to promote an urgency of their day. Still today, as a Christ follower, we still need to have the same degree of urgency. Keeping an eye on the clock saying, hey, I've got limited time. Do you feel the weight of that yourself? You feel like, you know what? It could be any time. Living with that intentionality, making sure that there's no phone call that still needs to be made, that there's no relationship that needs to be mended, that there's no loved one that you still need to proclaim Christ to. Living with an urgency. That's my takeaway from that first section there. Living with urgency. The text points out that in that urgency, that we're not alone in this, in this whole thing, that there's quite a degree of competition for the truth that we're presenting. It labels them, two groups, as an antichrist that is going to come and many antichrists that have come. Do you see that in the text? Two different groups. What is he referring to? The first is the antichrist that still is to come in the future. And this Antichrist is a running theme throughout the New Testament and pointed to in the Old Testament. Antichrist, pretty ominous name, right? It's, I mean, we're, like you think Darth Vader is bad. Like an Antichrist, the term there evokes like, whoa, somebody's an Antichrist? Like we know enough, even if we've had just a little bit of church, that that's a serious thing when we're talking about the Antichrist. The Antichrist, as Scripture teaches is a human leader, he's a slick, convincing politician, satanically charged, who will rise up to deceive the nations. He's talked about throughout Scripture, in fact, predicted by Christ in Matthew 24, 24, and then talked about all over the place. He's called a number of different names. You might be familiar with a few of them, man of lawlessness or the beast, He's someone, a reoccurring theme that's pointed to in the book of Revelations tells us that he will ultimately rule the world. He will usher in a one world government, a one world currency, a one world, if you're familiar with the mark of the beast, one world mark that scripture describes of either being in your forearm or in your forehead. A lot of these things a hundred years ago made absolutely no sense. Can't you see us moving that direction now as you watch the news, as you see the advancement in technology, as you see all the, 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 the stories coming out of the Middle East, the, the need for coming together collectively, setting the stage for that? So Scripture speaks of him often, but there is some debate as to whether or not he comes before Christ's return or after Christ's return. Either way, deceit is on the horizon and our text not only points to him, but it also refers to many antichrists. 
So you're talking about the Antichrist, the, the, the one that will ultimately deceive the world. But then many are present back then. And it would even propose in the text that a growing number as it gets closer to Christ's return. So who are these many Antichrists? If you glance down in verse 22, it describes who qualifies as an Antichrist. What does it say? Verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Let's stop there to think about that for a moment, to ponder this. Who is he talking about? Who is the liar? Who does it say? Whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. That's who qualifies as an Antichrist. John's truth test, if you will, is asking the question, who do you say that Jesus is? Notice that he doesn't refer to these people as anti-Jesus, but anti-Christ. You see, Christ isn't Jesus' last name, as some might think. Christ is actually the title of who Jesus was. And so if someone's anti-Christ they're questioning not whether he existed. There's plenty of people that acknowledge that there was a man named Jesus that walked the earth some couple thousand years ago. But the question is, who do people believe Jesus is? Who do people believe Jesus is? Who do you believe Jesus is? Anything other than God in the flesh, the Messiah sent to rescue us from our sin, is a lie. If we don't believe he's the Christ, the one sent to rescue us from the sin, it says in the text here that that person is an antichrist. So how do you establish whether or not somebody is that, that you're referring to or interacting with is an antichrist or is of Christ? That simple question. Who do they say Jesus was? A good man, a prophet, a good teacher? Like, who do they say Jesus was? If they say, based on this, it says, it says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? So anybody that denies Jesus being the Christ, the Messiah, they qualify as an antichrist. You think about that on a global scale. A lot of us want to wrestle through the, the question of like, okay, well, what do world religions say or what do they say he, Jesus Christ was? Who do they say he was? How many of them pass the test? And this is a touchy topic, I realize. Even when I was wrestling through this text this weekend, I'm like, man, anytime you talk about other world religions, there's kind of like, whoa, wait a second. Didn't you see the coexist bumper sticker? You know, like you're like, what, what happened? Like you, you can't bring up other religions. You have to respect them. But the truth is, all I want to do for a moment here is ju just ask that simple question and you can answer whether or not you believe they're of Christ or they're an anti-Christ religion. Muslims say that Jesus was a prophet and Allah doesn't have a son. That's what Muslims believe. Is that, is, how does that pass with John's test? Do they believe that Jesus was the Christ, is the Christ? Mormons say that Jesus is a God, but any human can become a God. Wait a second. That's, there's a problem there. 
Jehovah's Witness say that he was God's son, but deny his deity. Wait a second, but you're a son and a daughter. Like, we all fall in that camp. It's kind of lumping him in with, human, with all of humans. Most Catholics, and I recognize this is a touchy topic, most, most Catholics believe Jesus was God, but misunderstand the title Christ, missing that his work on the cross covers our sins, not our good works. You see, but the truth is, which is encouraging to me, is that a lot of Catholics cross that line where they start to understand, wait a second, if he's the Christ, that's good news for me. It's not based on my works that I'm saved. It's based on what he did for me on the cross. So, so often I talk to somebody that they, they say, yes, I, I'm Catholic. I grew up with that. My, my response to this reoccurring is, that, well, that's great. Which type of Catholic are you? Because there's two different camps. Are you a Catholic that's trying to earn favor with God by doing enough good works and maybe tip that scale at the end of your life? Is that the camp that you fall into? Are you the camp of Catholics that's embraced Jesus' death solely? You've seen him as the Christ. You've embraced his death as payment for your sins. You see, there's two different camps. So that complicates the Catholic one a little bit. Buddhists, basically all they would say was that Jesus was a great teacher, just a man. So they they would clearly, in my mind, fall in that category. Hindus vary in belief about Jesus, but at the most, they might say that, that, he, was, that he was the incarnation of one of the many gods. Like, wait a second, that, that doesn't qualify either of being what this, the scripture says, who denies the Father and the Son. So here, it's interesting how few of our world religions pass the test of this small section of Scripture? How many passed the test of seeing Jesus as the Christ? So growing number that we're surrounded with that believe opposite of us. A lot of people are like, oh, but wait a second, Scott, aren't, aren't you being a, a little bit exclusive with that? Like, yeah, Jesus was pretty exclusive. Jesus and John 14, 6, we're all familiar with it. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. There's not alternate paths. You, you can be heading to Malibu and choose Canaan Road or Lost Virginis, and both of them get you there. But with Jesus Christ, it's just one path. There's not alternate ways. And I don't know why we feel like we need to fight for alternate ways. You can't have opposing truths and both be right. Does that make sense in your mind? You can't decide, you're like, well, truth is relative. Whatever you believe, that's great. Whatever I believe, that's great. Truth is not relative. If you jump out of an airplane, you can't debate with gravity. You know, you can't, you can't say, well, your truth about gravity is one thing. My truth about gravity. No, you're going to hit the ground if you don't have a parachute. That's the way it works. You can't pull your mask out when you're, you're scuba diving and say, you know what, your thoughts on our need for oxygen is very different than my thoughts. No, there's certain things that are true and there's certain things that are not true. And scripture points to the fact that the simple question, who do you say Jesus is, determines whether you're in Christ or not in Christ. Critical thing to understand as we're trying to expose deceit in our world. So that's the first section. A lot there, obviously. 
as we continue on, obviously we're surrounded by quite a few antichrists. We shouldn't be shocked by verse 19. What does it say? It says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. It's a lot to say in that little section. It's pretty, uh, pretty makes sense in my mind, though. Unfortunately, with this much deception around us, it shouldn't shock us that there's those who fall away. It shouldn't shock us that people fall away when you're surrounded with so many options of, of truth that are all pointing towards, uh, towards deception and Christ not be, or Jesus not being the Christ. It shouldn't shock us that people fall away. You see, defection is proof of deception. Defection is proof of deception. This is a scary reality. This section is referring to people that were at one point in the community of believers, however, it says what? It says that they went out from us, that they didn't remain. One of, the tr- one of the truths about somebody that's in Christ is that they remain in Christ, that they abide in Christ. False teachers, like this quote by James McDonald, false teachers draw away false believers. False teachers draw away false believers. Even, there, even they, false teachers, are used in God's economy. They're used uh, to serve his end goal of purifying his people. They draw out the true believers, separating the sheep from the goats, if you will. This isn't saying that someone can lose their salvation. Don't, don't hear this text. A lot of people will point to it and be like, See, look, nobody's secure. Anybody can, can fall away. And, and, and they, they're, look, the, the, see, eternal salvation. Like That's not an option in the life of a believer. That's not at all what it's saying. What it is pointing to, not that someone can lose their salvation, but it does say that there are those that appeared to have it, and they never did. Those that appeared to have it, and they never did. And this is proven in the fact that they wandered. Remember two weeks ago when we were talking about different marks of somebody that was in Christ, we had this quote, assurance of salvation is not based on your performance for Christ, but on his performance in you. If you're truly saved, there's going to be some transformation that happens inside of you. There's going to be a shaping and a, and a, a remolding. You're, you're, somebody looks at you and they're just like, he's different. She's different. She's changed. The, the presence of Christ in his life doesn't allow you to stay the same person. Same point that he makes here is that when someone's, when someone's left the fold, you're like, man, you have to question, unfortunately, whether or not they were ever actually saved. It's a scary reality, but it's what the text points to. What do you do in response to that? How do we respond? In verse 20, it says this, We're describing holding on to the truth. It says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? We talked about this, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Did you catch that in verse 20? I, I like it with the things that it points to. 
says, you have been anointed by the Holy One. You all have knowledge and you know it. Basically, he's saying you have everything you need. You have everything you need to stand firm, to resist the attacks of the lies that we're surrounded with. I love the idea of, of, of being fully equipped. I'm a, in, a, in a life group with a few different couples. And uh, Ryan Shoden, who's a police officer, is one of the guys in our, in, our, uh, in our group. We have a picture of him there with his son. And uh, he showed up coming off of uh, his shift one time to our life group. And he came in and he was pu- pulled off his belt. And he showed us all the cool stuff on this belt. Like, I was like, man, I was like a little kid. I was like, what does that do? He's like, don't touch. It's like, what does that do? He, he, he pulls out his taser and shows how this thing works and all these different things that, that equip him for really any situation. He's fully ready for whatever his job throws at him. A gun, a cuffs, a taser, a club, a mace. He's got a little bit of everything in this bat belt. It was cool to watch. And, and, you, and, you think, and you think about it, you think about it, I was like, you know what, that reminds me of what the text is pointing to. He's saying, listen, you've got every single thing that you need. There's no such thing as spiritually elite people. Let me repeat that. There's no such thing as spiritually elite people. We all have the same gospel message as a foundation. We ha- all have the same Holy Spirit living inside of us if we've embraced Christ, and the same book as our guide. There is no such thing as somebody spiritually elite. Let's make sure we understand that. I'm up here. I'm just see my, I just see myself as a tour guide. I'm just walking you through things, pointing you to things. There's nothing that I'm saying that you couldn't, with the power of the Holy Spirit and sitting down with this book, come to the same conclusions about and they're like you're like I know I get it you're saying nothing profound but uh but 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 here the 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 text is pointing to that he's saying listen you know all of this you have this foundation you have the same helper if you're in Christ he can guide you to the truth it's an encouraging thing that we're established that doesn't, that doesn't mean that you're like, oh, great, well, then I'm never coming to church again. Like The, the truth is, you got to read this in context of all of Scripture, that, that God in Ephesians 4.12 points to the fact that uh, God establishes teachers for equipping the saints, that we learn from each other, that we sharpen each other. But he's pointing to the fact that you're like, listen, you don't have to go wandering looking for truth. You have the truth. If you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, if you've claimed the, the, the gospel message, if you've embraced that for yourself, you're fully equipped. We need to hold on to this. We need to cling to the foundation that we have. Because why? Because the text that we've already read. Because we're surrounded with antichrist. So many things just appealing to our itchy ears for like, oh, this kind of this is this is a new truth. This is a new understanding of God's word. There's a, there, this, is a, this is a new perspective on life. You look in today's bookstore and you see that all over the place. Think of some of the books that have become popular in the last five years. Some of them that have gotten a lot of attention. The Da Vinci Code. 60 million copies sold. You know what the foundation of the Da Vinci Code is? Pointing out the fact or disputing the deity of Christ. It's an it's a anti-Christ message. 
It's an antichrist. And 60 million people picked up that book. How about the book? Are you familiar with this one called The Secret? Ooh, that's appealing. I want to know what the secret is. Somebody quick tell me the secret. You know what the secret is in the book? The secret is that it points to is that you are God. It refers to us as masters of our universe. Masters, us and He-Man. Like what, what in the world? What are, you, what are you talking about? Masters of the universe. How, how about the, the shack? The shack, have you guys heard of this book? Here's, here's a quote from the shack, quoting Jesus, says, I am not the way, the truth, and the life. I am just the best way. I'm like, huh. Starts with a, a decent foundation. I'm one of the ways, but that's universalism. It's the idea that, hey, you can pick all kinds of paths. Mine's just the best. Like, come on, pick me, pick me. I'm a better path. No, that's not at all what Jesus Christ says. He says, I'm the only way. I'm the one way to the Father. All these books, be careful of what you're grabbing hold of and reading and what you're allowing to enter into our minds. So many antichrist messages that are out there. That's why in the last section here we see another defense is to cling to the teacher. Cling to the teacher, I've labeled that section. It says this, let whatever you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Kind of a reoccurring theme there of abiding, or I use the word cling in that description of, what does he say there? You've heard it from the beginning. What is he talking about there? What have you heard from the beginning? The, the basics, the foundations, that we were sinners, we were messed up, we're, we're in a desperate situation, but God entered in. He chose to intervene on our behalf through Jesus Christ. He didn't leave us in this state of separation between God and man. He intervened and provided a way to have our relationship restored with him through Jesus' death as payment for our sins. That's the, what they heard at the beginning, the, the good news, the free gift, if you will. We need to cling to that. Don't complicate it. Abide in it. I was in our, our life group, and a lot of times we spent some time sharing prayer requests, and this was just before uh, Easter, and I was just talking to the group, and I was like, yeah, there's a certain degree of pressure on Easter. It's kind of like uh, double attendance usually. There's a lot of people that show up on Easter that don't come the, the rest of the year, and I was like, man, I feel kind of a, a degree of pressure to have kind of a, a fresh new, new message for people to hear and uh, later on, it was neat because uh, one of the, the ladies, Carrie Lopez, in our group texted my wife later, and she said, you know, I felt convicted to, to send this message to Scott. And this is what she says. She says, tell it like it's your first time telling it. I was like, huh, tell it like it's your first time telling it. The idea that, listen, we don't, we don't need to wander and grasp for new truths. Stick to what we know. 
stick to the foundation. Is it not good enough news? Like, seriously, like, do we need better news than that? Like, what does he point to in the text there? He says, listen, you have eternal life. Do you need better news than that? What are we looking for? What are we shopping for? Cling to what we know. And then verse 27 is saying, listen, this is, you're set up for success. The anointing which you receive from him abides in you. Who do you think he's talking about? Who's abiding in us? The Holy Spirit set up camp, giving us strength to resist, to, to cling to the truth. But we're so forgetful. We wander so quickly. That's why you hear us so often say, listen, it's so important. Come to church. Be regularly refilled. Recharge. It's like coming back to home base. It's like getting plugged back in. Come, back, come to this. Be connected with a life group. People that can build you up. Can make sure that you're staying firm and planted with the foundation. Make sure that you're in the Word daily. We encourage devotions. We're like all these things pointing to the fact that we need to cling to Him. And what does He offer? What does it say in verse 27? He says, but as his anointing teaches you about everything. I love that idea of the role of the Holy Spirit in your life. Do you receive that? Do you partake in that? Do you feel like you're like, all right, Spirit, like what, what, should, I, what should I do in this situation? How should I respond? How, 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 should I buy this house? Should I sell this? Should I do this? Like how much do we involve him if it says that he teaches us everything? How much are we actually utilizing the advice that he offers. How sensitive is our ear to his voice? Or do we just kind of plow through, through things, kind of doing our own thing, and maybe at the end of the day you're like, oh yeah, it's dinner time, time to pray for the meal. You know? or, or are we literally clinging to the teacher? Are we listening to that spirit that lives inside of us? Are we clinging to his words in our life? Are we staying rooted in the word that he's entrusted to us? There's a few things that we can do to respond to his instruction that are negative. Scripture points to the idea in Ephesians 4.30 that we can grieve the Spirit. Grieving the Spirit, you hear that talked about a lot of time. Grieving the Spirit is doing the things that you're not supposed to. I, I like that idea of grieving, the idea of it literally making him sad. Like, oh man, that's that you're you're not doing you're not doing the right thing. That makes me sad. You think of that in a fatherly way, like how like when my kids mess up, it's it's not that I'm mad at them. I'm just sad. I'm just disappointed. I hope I hope better for them. That's the idea of grieving the spirit when we do the things that we know we're not supposed to be doing. The idea you also see in, in scripture in 1 Thessalonians 5 19. Have you heard this term before? To quench the spirit. To quench the spirit. So grieving is doing things you're not supposed to do. And quenching the spirit is not doing the things you're supposed to do. Does that make sense to you? Not, doing the things you're not supposed to is grieving. And quenching is not doing the things you're supposed to be doing. Saying, all right, that, that nudge that he gives you to go and do this. And you're like, oh, to say sorry to your wife. What do you do when you don't say sorry? You're quenching the spirit. You see, that's, that's, the, that's how the, the conversation goes in our days. And the, the, the point here in the section is saying, listen, you need to abide. Abide. The term abide means continual action of remaining. It's a continual action of remaining. It's a beautiful picture of abiding with someone, clinging to him, if you will. So you have the option to grieve the Spirit, the, to quench the Spirit, or you've also heard this term, I love this one, 
to fan the flame. To fan the flame. Have you guys ever done that with a, with a fire before? Where you start, you take a, a piece of wood and you start blowing on it. See, it's like, whoosh, whoosh, starts going up. And in Chicago, we're allowed to light fires because it rains there. And, uh, and, and so uh, when we go camping, uh, we'd get, this one time I remember in particular, it was kind of a, uh, it had been raining for a couple days and the ground was kind of wet. And if you've uh, grew up in the Midwest or anywhere other than Ca- California, it's kind of tough to start a, a fire when your, your wood's wet and you're like, oh man, this is going to take forever. It just keeps smoking and not doing a whole lot. And so I remember this particular time we're trying to light the fire, lighting, lighting some small uh, tin, Kindle underneath and you're getting it and uh, everybody was there and we're taking turns. <gasps> Have you done this before? Blowing on it. And like, it was so hard that we had a couple guys that were rotating. One guy would do 10 big breaths. Then finally, it was fun in this, this scenario, somebody had the ultimate solution. They had one of those, those blow-up pumps that you use for your, your blow-up uh, beds that we have nowadays in luxury camping. And, uh, and he brought that out on and he turned the button on and it blows, and he's like, guys, step away. I got this covered. He starts blowing that thing, and all of a sudden, the flames just like, we burned down the whole forest. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, but it was so neat to see the power of blowing on a flame. I was thinking about the picture that he's pointing there. He's like, listen, just abide in me. Stick with me. Keep doing everything you can to fan the flame. That's how we best protect ourselves from the lies around us. Keep fanning the flame. Keep clinging to him. It's fascinating to me in this book alone, how many times in the chapter he concludes, he presents the dilemma, the challenge, and guess what the same solution is? Abide. Presents the dilemma, presents the challenge. This is the obstacle. You've got this to deal with. Abide. It's kind of the running theme, and you're like, oh, it's getting old. He's saying the same thing. Remember, though, what, is it, what does it say in the beginning of the section? Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. There's no new tricks. There's no new solutions. It's one simple thing. Abide in him. I'm getting a little bit older, so I don't always remember the st- stories I've shared, but I'm going to try one that I, I, was, I was wrestling through. And I was like, ah, I don't remember this. But I remember one time my son Chase and I were out on a lake and we were uh, jet skiing. And uh, it was one of those days where a storm just came out of out of nowhere. It started coming. First, it was kind of a light sprinkle, and then we were, we were probably literally like a good mile out into this lake, a large lake. We're out there, and we're exploring around. There's a couple little islands, and to get back, it was probably a good mile, maybe mile and a half uh, to get back, and it started first a little drizzle, then out of nowhere. It was just one of those ones that we get in the Midwest, just a downpour, and it's beating us. And Chase, he was, he was a, uh, uh, quite a few years younger now. He's about five or six. And he starts just crying, just crying. I said, listen, Chase, I'm going to turn you around. I'm trying to talk in his ear because it's just pouring on us. And I turn you around. I'm going to take my wetsuit, the, the uh, life preserver thing, and I'm going to wrap mine around you. You just put your face in my chest. You don't even have to look at the rain. You just cling as tight as you can. And, and I'll do the driving. I'll take it from there. I was like, I'll get us back. I'll get, somehow, I didn't know if I was, but I was like, I, I'm going to do, do it. So it was so cool to see him. He tucked in. He got turned around. He was inside the, the jacket there, just nuzzled, nuzzled in there. I wrapped on, and I was just like, man on a mission. I'm getting back. I don't even care. And uh, it just re- re- reminded me of this picture, and I'm like, man, 
Isn't that the same invitation that we have with Christ? Isn't that the same thing that he calls us to? Like, don't complicate this. Don't try to make it like you wrestle through and be the, the yielder of truth. Yes, we're called to do that, but we're also called to abide. We're also called to abide. That's what he invites us to. I would propose what the text is saying is, man, you're surrounded with a lot of lies. Your best solution is just abide in him. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you so much for your word and how it really, it, it cuts straight to the truth and, and points to the fact that the one determining factor of whether something's true or lie as it relates to eternal issues is who does someone say Jesus is? Anything other than the Christ, the Messiah, God in the flesh, the one sent to rescue us is a lie. Truth is not in that person. God, I pray that you'd give us discernment to wrestle through all the lies that we're surrounded with and cling to what we know. To not be deceived, not to have itchy ears, listening for, for, for different things, new takes on things. We'd hold to the foundation of the gospel. You've equipped us, as we see in the text, with everything that we need. You've given us the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. You've given us your word. You've set up camp inside of us. God, my prayer for us individually and collectively, that we'd abide. You would do a work from the inside out of us, God. So grateful for you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. With eternity on the line, the worst nightmare would be for someone to have believed the wrong thing about who Jesus Christ is. My prayer is that it never gets old for us, that we cling to it, that we abide. I pray you have a wonderful day. Have a great Mother's Day. Thanks.